Today's reading is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. It can be found on page 946 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And as Jesus grew up, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and people. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. Let's take a second, uh, and I'm going to open with prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we invite you now to meet us in this time as we listen to words. Our lives are ever-changing. This world is ever-changing. There's a conviction of the Christian church that your word is unchanging. So may we experience it as thus today. And as we bring our messy lives, as we bring really a brokenness that we don't want other people to know about, and we all are in the same boat with that, may we be met once again, or maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, may we be met with your grace that says you move towards broken, messy, imperfect people with fragmented lives and you bring restoration. Bring that kind of grace through these words now in this time, we pray. Amen. It was about eight years ago, after a disappointing third-place finish in the Democratic Iowa caucus, that uh, Howard Dean stood up before his supporters late at night, I believe it was, and um, he decided to get motivational. And um, some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you remember... Um, what well, ended up being called the, the, the Dean Scream, right? That went viral. Um, he gave this emotional kind of fired up thing uh, to try to you know, keep the campaigners who were working for him excited and to not lose hope, and it totally, totally backfired. Um, it, I talked to somebody... This thing's kind of wanting to fall off here. I talked to somebody who had been working for the Dean campaign, and they were going door to door. 
and they were working so hard that she hadn't had time to, uh, to, you know, to watch TV and all this kind of stuff. They were going door to door to talk about Howard Dean in the next couple of days, and they were getting laughed at, and they didn't know why. They were getting people, oh, yeah, the screaming guy, you're with him, and they didn't know what anyone was talking about. You know, they're just, they're just you know, staying up late at night and get up early in the morning and pushing for their cause. And suddenly, out of the blue, like with a snap, Howard Dean gets defined by this 20 seconds of video, which then, you know, some would say, and Howard Dean would say, that there was multiple layers of distortion to that perception in terms of the microphone was a unidirectional one. It wasn't capturing the crowd, and so it sounded different. And he was also just sick and coming off this terrible flu, and so his voice wasn't right. And so there were these multiple layers of distortion to how people ended up defining him. And in a blink, he gets defined in a way that affects his political career for sure for that election. But from there on out, he gets defined by that. He gets known by that. The question today that we look at is, who gets to define Jesus? And how do you know as you try to define him, maybe yourself, or settle on a definition in your life, how do you know that you're not working with multiple layers of distortion as you look at him, as you try to figure out who he is? Uh, Life Books and Time Home Entertainment came out with this magazine that you can see on the shelves right now in stores. Maybe you've seen it. Cover of, with a picture supposedly of Jesus, and it says, big title, Jesus Subtitle on the bottom, Who Do You Say I Am? And you get to define, you get to decide. We love that, by the way. We love that sort of setup for us. Just give me a sort of documentary style, behind the scenes magazine. I can read it maybe in an evening or two and, you know, give a little time to think that issue through over the holidays and come out with what I, how I define who. Jesus is. There's something interesting that comes to mind when um, I think about that practice and that comfort zone really for us. Jesus will be who I say he is. In what circumstances do we do that in a sense? You think about who, who just says, ah, oh, just define me however you want to. You know, who, who's, who says that? Certainly I, th- I think about um, high school nicknames. You know, I, I got lucky enough. I got a high school nickname. They were doling these out, you know, in, in high school, and you just really dread that you would get a nickname. And I got one that was sort of positive. I lucked out because I got this nickname, and if I go back to my hometown and someone might refer to me by my nickname, which I'll let the cat out of the bag, Sparky, all right? I know you're thinking that doesn't sound great, but you should hear the other ones. Um, because, you know, that was a nickname that ended up being kind of associated with my basketball identity, which, which was really all of what I wanted to do and be at that point. So, hey, I'm known, people like, you know, it just had this affirmation vibe to it and still kind of brings those warm fuzzies today, but so many cases were not that pretty. And um, really, quite frankly, a nickname associated with something embarrassing. And then I, I just imagine going back to the hometown and just, you know, the, the, the hurt and the pain continues of just the ridicule of, uh, you know, who, at what point do you dis- just decide to define someone um, however you want to define them? So today we're touching on a different approach, not the, hey, who do you think? You know, make it up yourself, figure it out for yourself. We're going to look at some, something perhaps kind of novel for us. Who does Jesus think he is? And let's just absorb a little bit about what he thinks. And so what we're going to learn is that he thinks 
of himself as the Son of God, but he also thinks of himself as the Passover Son of God. Let's look at, look at this first point. Jesus thinks of himself as the Son of God. I, I've got a few examples from his life to look at. Example number one happens in our passage today when he's 12 years old. And you see Mary saying to him after, I won't go too much into the details on this, um, the background and so forth, but when they do finally come and they find Jesus, she says, um, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. This is when he's 12. He's in the year of preparation for adulthood, which is the year of close mentoring and apprenticeship by his father. So, you know, this, is, this probably sounded a lot like I'm making it sound. Your father and I, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's this year of mentoring when you're supposed to be owning up to adulthood. We've been searching for you, your father and I. And what does Jesus say in reply? Didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? What's going on? Jesus is saying in this crucial year for a Jewish first century boy, he's saying, I'm redefining what this year is all about. I'm redefining who my real father is. I'm making a sort of detachment here and a reattachment to something more true to my identity. There's another father, a bigger father. It would have struck them as odd, and definitely they, the, you know, Luke, as he tells the story, he says they were confused. They didn't understand. I think of, um, I think of the artist Prince and his self-definition moment. I think it was, um, did I write it down here? I'm pretty sure it was 1993 um, when he came out with the symbol of his, and this was his, self, this was his weird self-definition moment that nobody understood. And for days, people didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to even talk about him anymore. I mean, how do you talk about what he does when it's a symbol, a nonverbal symbol? And nobody knew what it meant. He didn't tell, tell me what it meant. So finally, his spokespeople relented and said, okay, you can refer to him as the artist formerly known as Prince. Now, talk about a uh, publicity stunt. Oh, man. But, you know, it was not so subtle. It was very public, and it was not subtle in its oddness. Jesus his self-defining moment here as a 12-year-old is actually a subtle theological innovation because he's saying, my personal father. He's talking about God, the father of the temple. He's talking about God this way, my personal father. And in, in Jewish theology, that hadn't happened. In the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that, that wasn't a way of talking about God yet. But this precocious 12-year-old invents it. So he's doing a subtle theological invention, but it is not, or innovation, but it's not lost on the people who would be around him and surrounding him throughout his life. It brings us to example number two. If you go all the way to the end of his life, this claim, this connection to God, my personal father, would follow him all the way through his life. It wasn't just here when he was 12 years old that he allowed his parents to get a window into who he thought he was. But it happened over and over again, so much so that in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's very clear that at stake, as he is put on trial, is do you think that you are the Son of God? And he left them hanging, but he definitely never denied it. So Jesus, at 12, 
uh, begins suggesting something that um, he walks right into this Jewish first century landmine. It's certain to get him killed. And it does. So we've got sort of a choice to make as we consider that. Is it bravery or is it stupidity? I mean, there's a sense here in which Christianity, if you're really thinking it through, Christianity makes itself extremely vulnerable at this point. Because certainly you could go with, okay, it's bravery, but you could also go with, he was just out of his mind. He was not playing with a full deck. That's the identity of Jesus. Or is he who he says he is? And if you go with that, if you look into it and you say, in the end, this does not have the markers or the signs of someone who's not playing with a full deck, then you've got to be sort of confronted with um, the possibility that Jesus really was the Son of God. And then you start to say, well, then what does that mean? What could it mean? What could it mean for you today? And Jesus' own self-definition, again, a third example of it, let's, let's try to find out what this might mean for us by thinking about a parable. Jesus spoke in parables, stories, examples that spoke of a deeper spiritual meaning. There was a parable of various parables of vineyards, and there was one of a vineyard owner who got so frustrated with the mismanagement that he was hearing about of his distant vineyard that he had left servants in charge of that he would send servants and they would get beat up and sent back and rejected, that eventually he said, I'll send my own son to the vineyard that has become a total mess through mismanagement and the rest. It's just a mess. I'm going to send my son into the mess. And then maybe, the, maybe they'll listen. Maybe it'll get cleaned up. Maybe it'll get restored. Maybe it'll function the way things were meant to function on my vineyard. I want you to think about that in terms of what it means for Jesus to be son of God, coming into our world, coming into uh, really our mess. What has 2012 been for you? Certainly there's some people who will say, hey, it's been a year of joy. It's been a year of blessings. There have been good things that have come my way that I hoped for. There have been open doors, someone might say. There have been... Uh, answered prayers such that uh, my faith is increased. I'm blessed. But not for everyone. That's not what everyone would say. And that won't be what everyone's 2013 will be either. Because some of you have had or will have uh, in this past year to deal with death or sickness or grief in a way that you come out of it at the end of the year, you say, I'm a different person because of having to deal with this loss or this just this level of emotional trauma. Some of you have had uh, financial trouble come up this year that just either came out of the blue or built up over time. And uh, you had moments where you just prayed that you'd get by or that things could get fixed up somehow. Some of you have had closed doors such that you felt like your hopes were dashed and your dreams went missing. And many of you have had unanswered prayers, and you feel like God has been absent. And if you haven't in 2012, some of you will have that in 2013. And for Jesus to be the Son of God um, means that instead of assuming amidst that mess and that 
Possibly even you feel like there's been some mismanagement in your life, like the vineyard servants. And amidst your mess, in your mismanagement, to step away from that gut reaction that God is disappointed with you, that God is going to turn away from you, he's going to turn his back to you, he's, he's scandalized by your mess, or he's, maybe the mess is punishment from God. For Jesus to be the Son of God is to, to turn away from that and say, what if I know God most and I know the Son of God most in that mess because God moves towards it? And it is there that I'll know God most. It is there that God will show up most amidst your grief, amidst your mismanagement, amidst your um, sin, brokenness, and hurt. God moves towards you in your mess. And if you make that shift, there's a chance in 2013, if you make that shift, that's going to have huge implications that you assume out of the starting gates that God is going to move towards your mess and be present like never before, that your outlook and your experience of God will be such that you know God and experience the Son of God like never before just because of that shift. Let me just say the second, but this is a lot more brief. So Jesus is, first of all, the Son of God. That's what he owns, and you can, I just kind of laid out some of the ways that he shows up throughout his life. It follows him all the way along. You can't get away from it. You have to be confronted by it. But also, he's the Passover Son of God. Uh, saying that he's the Son of God, that's sort of like his talk in this passage today. And we have that phrase, you know, talk is cheap. And so if you look at his action in this chapter, and in his, at the end of his life as well, you see a focus, and that focus is on the Passover. The Passover is a seven-day festival, and uh, Jesus' family, they had to travel there. It was an arduous journey, and um, it was a whole week, and there were certainly the levels of, 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 of uh, uh, commitment to God such that there would be people who wouldn't go at all, and there'd be some who would go for some of the, just the few days that were most important, and then there were others like Jesus' family who went for the whole seven days. So for Jesus to be hanging around three extra days, you know, talking with the spiritual leaders in the temple after Passover and around this Passover time. I mean, who does that? Basically, the answer is the, the, the religious mega-nerds. I mean, that's, what's, that's basically where Jesus is putting himself at this point. I mean, if you think about Times Square at 6 a.m. on New Year's Day and showing up with a... With, an, with a colorful hat and streamers and confetti in your hand. That's a little bit like being at the temple for the three days after the seven-day, huge, eventful city full of people, and now they're gone. But Jesus is still processing and discussing and understanding the Passover. And the reason is because as Jesus makes this identity shift and says, I'm being shaped now in this year, this important year of shape, being shaped into adulthood, I'm being shaped by the father of this temple. And what do we learn is that he's being shaped right at this time of Passover. He's being mentored by the father and what the Passover is all about and how the ancient people of Israel as well as the people in, jo- in Jesus' family believed that God enters in to this world and he saves. 
it was a long way behind them. I mean, this, there, there hadn't been anything salvation-wise, God entering for a long time, but they were hanging on and doing this practice and, and looking at this, this unleavened bread and sitting around together at the climax of Passover and saying, this bread, remember, God comes and saves. And remember the blood of the lamb spread on the doorpost that brings people to freedom in the safety in security of God's protection, God's salvation. Jesus is stewing on all of this. He's being mentored in all of this because one day he was going to be back in Jerusalem again. And as it was Passover week again and he was with his closest 12, he was going to hold up the bread and then he was going to hold the cup of wine and he was going to say, and they were going to be shocked by it, by the way, because they were faithful Jewish uh, folks who knew how the words went. And he said, this is, again, the personal language, my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. And Jesus is saying, when he's the Passover son of God, he's saying that... um, He's basically saying, I'm going to follow the Father's voice to the cross so that you can follow the Father's voice to his forgiving embrace. Or to put it another way, Jesus as an adult follows what that means, the body broken and the blood shed and follows that to the cross. He does that as an adult so that you can have the confidence of God's welcome that he had when he was 12 years old. When Jesus was 12 years old, he had all the confidence in the world that he was welcome in the presence of the Father. And he, by going to the cross, gives that to you. Do you have that kind of confidence? Is that going to shape your year? In, in Psalm 65, certainly Jesus was a student of Scripture that he would have known this text. We read, Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Jesus knew that. Jesus would speak those words with utter confidence. The invitation of knowing Jesus for who he really is is to know that for yourself this year and to walk with your head high in the grace and forgiveness of God. It's, it's transformational. When I, was, um, when I was a kid, we went on this train trip across country. And I remember, I think I was 12 years old too, so um, I didn't think about that till just now I'm saying this. 12-year-old, this is a day for 12-year-old stories. And uh, I was on this train and I met this kid who was nearby us on this long journey across the country. And I asked him if I could call him Matt. Because it wasn't his name. I don't remember his real name, but he looked like a kid in my school named Matt. What a, what a silly, weird thing. Can I just call you Matt because you look like this kid and that's easier for me? And the, the thing about it was that he said yes. And so I just kept calling him Matt for, I don't know, two or three days on this trip together. We had a blast, but he let me call him Matt. I mean, that's so, so odd now that I think back that he just said, sure, call me a different name. And there's a very real sense in which as we come to Jesus that we want to just, we want to do something very similar to that. We want to say, can I just call you this? Can I just call you that? Can you just be this for me? 
And can I keep kind of this whole side of my life away from you and this over here, I'll let you in, sort of the easy parts. And can, you, can I just define you this way? And I can't imagine Jesus getting really mad about that. But I think he just kind of laughs knowingly and says, uh, you, can, you can do whatever you want. You, know, you can call me that. But the truth is, at the end of the year, you're not going to have me. You're going to have whatever you decided you, you want to have. And if you want a grace that transforms, come and let me define who I am for you. Let's pray. Our God of grace, we need your help so much as we try to get to know you and what, uh, what it means to know you. Uh, we don't call the shots. And so I pray that in whatever barrier we might have today, that it, uh, getting in the way of just knowing your grace, that you would walk us and call us with your gracious voice closer to knowing you. Um, we ask this uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the strong name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.